It's just after midnight, just 12 days until Christmas, and you are listening to the Midnight Ride Podcast. I'm Connor Coughlin, and I'm flying solo today as my partner in crime, Paul Runyon, jet sets around the globe. I think we all agree with that, right? Now, we're not perfect, but America certainly continues to evolve toward the inspirational dreams of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who famously said he dreamed of a world where a man would be judged not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character. Again, we should all be judged on what we do every day, right? Not what we say, not our virtue signaling, but but by our actions. And yet, We got Hunter Biden selling paintings for hundreds of thousands of dollars to anonymous buyers. Uber racist Nick Cannon is still paid millions of dollars for hosting shows on TV. Pervert sicko Jeffrey Tubin is still a newscaster on CNN. The list goes on and on of people of a certain political persuasion who are not judged by the content of their character, but rather on their allegiance to our oligarchical masters. But, and this is a big but, there is still a place where people are judged on their character and their actions. Yep, there's that most glorious document, very inconveniently for the progressives. It's called the Constitution of the United States, which in Article 3, Section 2, which deals with the judicial branch, states that the trial of all crimes shall be by a jury. Not by a judge, not by a group of elected judges, but a jury of ordinary Americans. The Sixth Amendment of the Bill of Rights goes on to state that the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district where the crime shall have been committed and to be confronted with the witnesses against him. Now, the provisions of the Sixth Amendment, like the other amendments in the Bill of Rights, lean heavily in favor of the accused. And that's the best way to ensure a legal system where we only convict those who actually commit crimes. It definitely, you know, it definitely gives the accused the benefit of the doubt. Which brings us to Jussie Smollett. Now, you would have to have been living under a rock not to know that last week the former actor, I, I don't remember the name of the show that he was on. Let's see here. Empire, not a fan of that show, haven't, haven't watched that, not surprisingly, uh, was convicted of five felony counts of disorderly conduct for lying to police and concocting a hate crime hoax in order to, I guess, get some publicity and perhaps get more public sympathy as he tried to negotiate with his employers for more money. The conviction of Jesse Smollett, if you love America, was like an early Christmas present. A jury of 12 Chicagoans who rendered a most important victory. They stood up and said, facts matter, actions matter. And the conviction of Smollett is just the latest in a recent string of court rulings, again, by ordinary Americans carrying out their solemn duty as prescribed in the Constitution to deliver justice real justice, not the contrived social justice or the garbage that's being put out by the legacy corporate media, 
but actual justice where a man or a woman is judged on his or her actions, the content of their character, not the color of their skin. So we'll go over all of those recent rulings in just a second. But first, let me state the obvious. These juries are being cursed out right now in leftist-controlled enclaves because their rulings went against the contrived narrative. They went against the politics of racial division and a web weaved by the commercial news media designed to stoke racial tension. You're very familiar with this narrative, but let me just kind of lay it out there. It goes something like this. White Americans are inherently racist and evil. And since the election of Donald Trump in 2016, white supremacists, you've been hearing that term a lot lately, became emboldened and began committing acts of violence against people of color. And above all, police, the people charged with keeping all of our communities safe, they're at the forefront of this campaign of violence against black Americans, killing them with impunity. And when criminal cases reach the courtroom, there are two justice systems in America, one for white Americans and one for everybody else. Did I pretty much sum that up? I've watched CNN enough to recite this narrative by heart. Let's start as we let's unpack that narrative here for a second. And we'll start with the blasphemous allegation against police. People who we should all thank every single day. We see them on the streets for having the toughest job in America. We know from FBI crime statistics that, yes, police do kill people every day, just about, or, or a lot of the time. Remember, there are 330 million Americans, and you know, especially since the election of Joe Biden over the last year, crime is skyrocketing. 12 U.S. major cities reporting occasionally people are killed by police for no reason. That actually does happen. But the FBI crime statistics show a microscopic number of police killings of unarmed suspects compared to those millions of police interactions. In the high-profile cases where the facts support prosecution of police, the reality is, is that cops are being convicted and sent to prison. That sort of goes against the company line in the narrative. In 2018, a police officer named Jason Van Dyke, the officer who gunned down teenager Laquan McDonald in Chicago, as the video showed, he was walking away from officers. Van Dyke was sentenced to prison for murder. Earlier this year, we all know, Derek Chauvin, the officer whose name will live in infamy for famously or infamously putting his knee on the neck of an ailing George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis. He was convicted earlier this year for second and third degree murder and manslaughter, and he received a sentence of 22 and a half years. Just last month, the acquittals of Kyle Rittenhouse, a white teen being attacked by white criminals in the streets of Kenosha, and Andrew Coffey, a black man who shot at police in Vero Beach, Florida, both were acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. And then that was followed by the conviction of the three men in Georgia for the tragic murder of Ahmaud Arbery. All of these cases totally debunked the false narrative of a racist justice system. And so finally, we come to the Jussie Smollett case. 
for me, the beauty of this case was the very public rebuke of the bold-faced, shameless nature of Smollett's lies. Despite all of the evidence, the two witnesses against them, Smollett doubled and tripled down on his lies. And why not? Look at it from his perspective. He had everyone from U.S. senators, the future president and vice president of the United States, every major media network, and several high-profile Hollywood celebrities not only believing in his claims, but repeating them on their platforms, on television, in social media. And then when he was charged, he got the state's attorney for the city of Chicago to drop all charges last year. And despite the video evidence, the Subway sandwich that miraculously stayed intact throughout the alleged encounter, the the testimony of the two Osendero brothers that basically made this case an open and shut one, Smollett had every reason to think that he would not be held accountable for this. And and why do I say that? Well, since the election of Donald Trump in 2016, hate crimes have become the focus of the FBI and the media. There are two components to this. Yes, there has been an increase in hate crimes, not necessarily against the groups the media would tell you about, but there has also been an astronomical increase in hate crime hoaxes. I won't go too much into the former except to say that hate crimes are real. They do happen. I personally think that a murder is a murder and murderers should be punished to the full extent of the law. We shouldn't really regulate their motives for the murder. We don't need to say, I mean, if someone kills somebody because they hate them because of their religion, should they go to jail more than somebody who's indifferent to the suffering or death of others? I say throw the book at everybody to the maximum extent of the law. But but hate crimes are a real thing, and they are happening in 2021 against every group in our society. There are hate crimes, of course, and the media will highlight these against black Americans. There are hate crimes against white Americans. There are an increasing number of hate crimes against Asians and Jewish Americans. And hate crimes, we should be clear, are perpetrated by every single group in our society. It's not always who the media portrays as the culprits. White Americans do commit hate crimes, although at a disproportionately low percentage, about 55% of hate crimes are committed by whites. Black Americans commit about 20% of the hate crimes. And and that's a disproportionately high number. All of that is not really relevant. Like I said, I mean, people should be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But I, I point this out to say that the media selectively shows you certain hate crimes and not others. Many of the hate crimes against Asians, for example, are being committed by other minorities. And there is tons of video evidence, which you can see if you have a Twitter account. But since it doesn't fit the narrative the elites want you to see, you don't see it very often on legacy media. As for the hate crime hoaxes, they're everywhere. Andy No, uh, the heroic reporter of the Post Millennial, recently shared a list of these hate crime hoaxes on his Twitter feed, and I urge you to check it out. 
in just about every case of these hate crime hoaxes, when the when the hoax was was found out, and these often happen on university campuses, but also in ordinary society, the case just went away. No public apology, no charges against the perpetrator of the hoax, no reimbursement for the cost of the investigation. In the Smollett case, by the way, the investigation by Chicago police and the FBI, I think it cost over $100,000. Now, there were dozens of these hoaxes that took place in November of 2016, immediately after the election results came out and it became clear that Donald Trump was going to be our, our next president. And when these hoaxes were found out, rather than condemnation or contrition, the alleged victims and, and many of their apologists in the media said, well, okay, maybe it didn't happen. But this is the kind of thing that's going to happen under Donald Trump because these people now feel like this is their country. And this statement is important to draw attention to the racism that Trump represents, except for one thing, facts matter. The truth matters. And maybe the truth doesn't matter to CNN or to the politicians and celebrities who echoed Jesse's false claims. By the way, none of these people have come out since the verdict and condemned Smollett for his very dangerous attempt. And he knew what he was doing his very dangerous attempt to pour gasoline on who you put in that jury box, the 12 citizens who are charged by our Constitution to uphold law and order in our society. Law and order, remember that? And, and as you look at the decay in our cities, the smash and grab looting, the killing, the complete disregard for law in what, you know most of our cities and in states right now that's going on, the truth should matter to all of us because we are the people who elect the attorneys general, the mayors, the governors, and the presidents. And our nation depends on these juries jailing criminals and freeing the innocent. Facts in a jury deliberation room will trump Robin Roberts or Chris Cuomo any day of the week. Now, maybe it's too much to ask, but I think that Mr. Smollett should get a role in Orange and the Orange is the New Black. Fit him for his jumpsuit and send him to jail, maybe for, you know, three to five years. A message has to be sent to those who fan the flames of racial tension and lie about these, these attacks, because while they are happening, when they're not, I mean, Smollett is basically making every subsequent claim less believable. So we all owe a special thank you to the Smollett jury, the coffee jury, the Rittenhouse jury, the jury which got justice for Ahmaud Arbery, the Chauvin jury, and the Van Dyke jury, and countless juries that you've never even heard of because the media didn't care about those cases because it didn't fit their narrative. We owe all of them a big thank you. But most of all, as always, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to America's founding fathers. I'm going to take a quick break, but coming up, una buena noticia, more good news for America, and maybe some really bad news for the Democratic Party. We are back here on the Midnight Ride. Connor Coughlin here, flying my first solo mission on the TMR pod as Paul Runyon 
is on a fact-finding mission in Dubai. Boy, it must be nice to avoid the winter weather and get some vitamin D at a six-star hotel. You know, I would have joined him. We could have done the show from there, but I'm just too dedicated to you listeners, and I don't have the kind of frequent flyer miles that Paul does. I wanted to get you a guest host for the show, but Glenn Greenwald, Liz Wheeler, and Adam Housley had better things to do with their Sunday nights, so you're stuck with me. Well, I promised you some good news, and this one is a doozy, something that has no doubt gotten the attention of the entire political class. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal ran a story citing a WSJ poll which asked Hispanic Americans which congressional candidate would be their choice in the 2022 election, the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate. 37% said they would vote Democrat. 37% said they would vote Republican, and 22% said they were undecided. Let me say that again. 37% for both the Republican and Democratic candidates in this poll of more than 1,500 Hispanics across the United States. A tie with 22% up for grabs. When asked who they'd support in a potential rematch in 2024 between President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, which sadly it's looking like that is a possibility that both Biden and Trump would run again, which I don't think would be good for America. 44% said they'd back Joe Biden and 43% said that they would pull the lever for Donald Trump. Now, I don't have to tell you that these numbers, if they can be relied upon, are staggering and a potential death knell for Democrats for whom identity politics, racial preferences for people of color, and the handing out of free stuff are the core of their platform. How bad would it be for Democrats? Well, in 2020, House candidates for the Democratic Party got 60% of the vote. Again, in 2022, right now, this poll says they'd get 37% a 23% drop. And remember, this is a non-presidential election where typically only the most informed and energized voters even make it out to the polls. President Biden got 63% of the Hispanic vote in 2020. His numbers, according to this poll, have dropped 20%. It's not just a few states that we're talking about here where our Hispanic hermanos and hermanas will affect the outcome. Latinos are the fastest growing voting demographic in the United States, and they're well represented in the entire lower 48 and obviously Puerto Rico. But in several key states, Hispanic voters are critical. Of course, we're talking about Florida, Arizona, Nevada, Texas, and even the Democratic strongholds of New York, Illinois, and California. You always hear the insufferable, smarmy leftist virtue signalers parroting this same talking point, that America is getting browner and darker. Look at their faces when they say it, too, the gleefully saying this. Um, and, And that's great. I mean, diversity is a beautiful thing. The United States is the most diverse and welcoming country in the world. But the Democrats seem to think that it will be good for them. They say that when all the old white voters die off, the Republican Party will never win another election. Well, Let me spoil the party for them a little bit and say this. If the black and Hispanic voting blocs, which 
for most of my lifetime have been dominated by the Democratic Party, move to the right, even by a small margin, 10 to 15 percent, the Democratic Party is finished. And a few episodes ago, we spoke on the awakening as it pertained to the black vote. Barack Obama, understandably in 2008, as the first black president ever elected in our nation, he got 95 percent of the black vote. And in 2012, he got 94 percent. Hillary Clinton, I believe, got 93%. But now that number for Joe Biden eroded to 91% of the black vote. We know that Joe Biden never would have even been the Democratic nominee were it not for the black vote. That much is true. And that's why he told everybody that he was going to nominate a black woman as his vice president. But in the national presidential election, he got about 91%. So over those 12 years, it has eroded about 4%, but there are signs that it could be changing even more. And it looks like the same thing is happening with the Hispanic vote. In 2020, Donald Trump actually won in some heavy Hispanic districts in South Texas, and he closed the gap nationally in the Latino vote. And it looks like things have gotten a lot worse over the last year for President Biden and the Democrats. Why is this? Well, the Wall Street Journal in their article cites economic issues as the number one reason and states that Hispanic males have gravitated towards the Republicans. Many of those folks said that they liked the economic policies of Donald Trump and wanted to see America return to those. And that could also be the case for black Americans who saw record unemployment under Trump. And this lockdown, the economic policies of this current administration have not been good for either group, especially as it pertains to COVID-19. The lockdowns in blue states decimated small businesses and eliminated a lot of people's livelihoods, especially folks who could not work from home on on a Zoom terminal. Uh, In places like Florida and Texas, though, where GOP governors held the line on some of these lockdowns, many people kept their jobs. People remember this. Also, let's not forget that the Biden administration has essentially given the double middle finger to the oil and gas industry, a business that paid a lot of Texans, anybody willing to get their hands dirty, as much as $130,000 per year working in the Permian Basin. In, in West Texas. And those jobs, many of them have gone away. So Hispanic Americans down in, in that part of the country were getting rich, getting their hands dirty, working in the oil fields, getting rich. And now they're told, well, sorry, you, you got to find a new line of work. What about immigration? It's obvious to anyone with a brain what the Democrats are doing, even during a pandemic where it's probably wise to ensure that people coming into your country are tested for COVID-19 and quarantine. Biden's open border policy has put a couple of million illegal aliens into the United States. Where do those people go? Do they take American jobs? You're darn right they do. And they're not taking jobs away from Hunter Biden or the leftist elite children. They're often taking them away from working class white Americans and black and Hispanic Americans. Does this open border policy bring crime? Well, 
I got to be careful how I say this. It, it is a fact that most immigrants coming into the United States, especially those who come here legally, imagine that, some people still do that, are more law-abiding than natural-born Americans. But the fact is that allowing anyone who wants to pour across our borders has increased crime in America. It has increased crime in our cities and violent crime at that. Where has this crime increase occurred? Not on Martha's Vineyard, not in Brentwood or on Lakeshore Drive, but in working class communities where voters of all ethnicities and backgrounds live and work. So the economic lot of Hispanic voters has gotten much worse under Joe Biden. Crime in their communities has skyrocketed. Immigrants are taking their jobs, just like white Americans. When someone comes into your community and takes your job or commits a crime after breaking our nation's immigration laws, you're not going to feel good about it just because someone speaks the same language or the same language that your parents do. You're rightly going to be pissed off and you're going to blame the people responsible. And that is clearly the Democratic Party. And these aren't the only issues. The preponderant majority of Hispanic voters are Catholic Americans. They may not be 100% enthused by the party platform of abortion at all costs. And like black they're like their black voters and like their black brothers and sisters, they may not be crazy about rampant transgenderism and the grooming of children. In fact, Hispanic voters are not only religious, they're very oriented toward family values. And they're very passionate about their language and their identity. So when the Democrats roll out a new term for Latinos, calling them Latinx, trying to take the gender out of their beautiful romantic language, they lose a lot of these people. One other thing, for somebody like Joe Biden who says, well, black kids are just... One other thing, for somebody like Joe Biden who says, well, poor kids are just as smart as white kids. He may not understand this, but Hispanic voters are not all Mexican. They're, very, they're not a monolith. They come from about 30 different countries. And voters whose families come from Cuba or Venezuela are very wary of Democratic politicians who sound an awful lot like the communist leaders they risk their lives trying to get away from. Immigrants from Mexico and Central America, who no doubt came here for a better life, they didn't just come here for money. Many of them ran away from countries where the institutions collapsed and law and order died. They very much want to live in a place where they are protected from criminals and cartels. How do you think somebody living in Chicago or Minneapolis feels about democratic policies right now? Probably not very good. The one thing the Democrats are counting on is the fact that in many of the countries in Latin America, votes can be easily bought or old traditions die hard. In Mexico, for instance, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or the PRI as it's known, held power in Mexico City for more than seven decades consecutively, despite the fact that their policies only increased income inequality and benefited the white elites. Does that sound familiar to you? So for me, the only surprising thing about this story is that it hasn't happened sooner. Republicans should not rest on their laurels, but they should continue their outreach to Hispanic voters, particularly women, 
and deliver with economic policies that lift the tide for all boats, policies that keep our communities safe and protect our children from the poison and the perversion that's being pushed by the left. We might hear President Biden say in, in his next election, hey, if you're considering voting for that other guy, you ain't Latinx, to which the Hispanic American voter will no doubt respond, no, Joe, I ain't. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on the Midnight Ride podcast. Thanks for listening. We are back here on the Midnight Ride. And during the break, I was just checking on the action around the National Football League. And just a few minutes ago, breaking news out of Chicago. From the post-millennial reporter Hannah Nightingale reporting, and this is very timely news given the first segment of this podcast, that the city of Chicago will sue convicted felon and disgraced actor Jesse Smollett for the amount of $130,106 for the costs of investigating his false claims. According to the story, the city had more than two dozen police officers investigating Smollett's hoax, and the officers accrued 1,836 hours of overtime during the investigation. Now, I think the city's handling of this Jesse Smollett hoax should serve as a model for how every city handles these things going forward. Charge the liars for making the, the false claims, publicly shame them in court, send them to jail, and sue them for every taxpayer dollar wasted. Bravo, Chicago. You are definitely my kind of town. And as for the universities where these hate crime hoaxes are so abundant, expel the students and force their parents to reimburse campus police, that should also be the standard. I guarantee you, if cities and universities and colleges handled these liars in this fashion, the trend would disappear and it would be so much better for our country because, frankly, we don't need fake, uh, fake race hoaxes anymore. Also happening over the weekend, the U.S. Naval Academy defeated the Military Academy at West Point in a friendly game of American football in Philadelphia on Saturday. You may have heard about it. The Army-Navy game and the midshipmen won 17-13. Navy now leads this iconic series 62-53. to And we will keep all of the players, the entire student body for both academies, and all of their brothers and sisters currently serving around the world tonight in our prayers this holiday season. One thing that is starting to germinate online is a claim first made before the game by Donald Trump Jr. on Twitter, and then more recently by New York Representative Lee Zeldin, that President Biden did not attend the game because he was worried he would have been greeted by chance of Let's go, Brandon, from the stands. Trump Jr. claiming that he heard this from unnamed sources, that that was the case. And Zeldin saying, and I quote, this would have been the largest let's go, Brandon chant that had ever taken place. Where to begin? This is really a nothing story that will probably grow legs, sadly, in some circles, because that's just the nature of politics right now. And this is what this is, politics. All I can tell you about this story is that 
anyone who would say that has probably never been to an Army-Navy game and probably never served in uniform. Donald Trump Jr. never spent a day in uniform in his life that I'm aware of. And Zeldin, a former Army intel officer and lawyer who still serves in the Army Reserve, was not at West Point. The fact is that only 10 U.S. presidents have attended the game. Ronald Reagan, who served in the Army, he never attended the Army-Navy game. Neither did war hero and Navy veteran George H.W. Bush. And Bill Clinton and Barack Obama both attended the game. I don't know the factors that led to Reagan and Bush not going or, or why Joe Biden didn't attend, but no matter how President Biden is seen by the men and women in uniform, the troops respect the office of the presidency and their commander-in-chief. I suspect that any chance could have emanated from the stands, not from the sidelines or from the brigades, but I highly, highly doubt it. In any case, this is just a weak political pot shot from Trump Jr. and a politician in Zeldin who is running for governor of the state of New York next year. And Congressman, or Lieutenant Colonel, if you want to honor your fellow men and women in uniform, talk about the game, talk about the troops serving right now overseas. You dishonor them all by pushing this stupid narrative. The Let's Go Brandon meme itself is hilarious, not because of what the people are chanting in the stands, which is vulgar and highly disrespectful to the office. It's hilarious because it triggers the leftists to no end. I personally wear a Let's Go Brandon mask on airplanes for this exact purpose, but it has no place on a military base or at an event like the sacred Army-Navy football game. And anyone who's ever been to that game or served in uniform knows the likelihood of that chant being heard was close to zero. In any case, President Biden had his hands full this weekend, and he does today, as devastating tornadoes have swept through Kentucky, Missouri, Tennessee, Illinois, Arkansas, and Mississippi. These were massive storms that leveled entire towns, killing more than 80, and it is feared that more than 100 Americans are dead in the wake of these storms. Now, President Biden has mobilized the federal government to assist, and he's mostly saying the right things. But when given a leading question from a reporter about how climate change might have influenced the tornadoes, President Biden couldn't resist, stating, the specific impact on these storms, I can't say at this point. I'm going to ask the EPA and others to take a look at that. But the fact is, we know everything is more intense when the planet is warming, and obviously, it has some impact here, end quote. Does it, Mr. President? Are you sure about that? This planet has been around a very long time, and I'm pretty sure there have been some pretty big storms and events much, much worse than this weekend storms, even though they were historically bad. And even if global warming, which could say is caused by that orange ball in the sky more than human factors. But whatever the reason, if global warming is contributing to tornadoes, which scientists are still trying to figure out definitively, does it really help matters making that statement while they're still trying to locate all the bodies? Everything about this from the reporter asking the president the question as the rescue crews were still sifting through the wreckage, 
to the president not passing on the opportunity to speculate, it just feels out of place and at a minimum inappropriate while rescue and recovery efforts are underway. Mr. President, just do your job and let the scientists and academics do theirs. I want to end this podcast on a positive note. So one more news story to share with you. This from the Associated Press. Saturday morning, a woman named Katie Poston in New Albany, Indiana, walked out to her car and saw an old photo, an old black and white photo stuck to her windshield in her car. The photo was from 1942 and showed a woman in a striped sundress holding a little boy in her arms. And it had a couple of names written on the back of the photo, Gertie and J.D. Swatzel. I hope I'm saying that right. Poston posted the photo to Facebook, and soon enough, a man named Cole Swatzel responded, saying the photo belonged to his family members who lived in Dawson Springs, Kentucky, 130 miles away. Think about that. The, the tornado damaged this home, blew through it, picked up this photo, and sent it two states away to Indiana, where it landed on this woman's car. The photo will be returned to the family, a priceless family item that likely never could have been replaced. So there's a a bit of good news. For the great Americans in Kentucky, Missouri, Arkansas, Illinois, Tennessee, and Mississippi, you are all in our prayers tonight. And for our listeners, I urge you to donate anything you can, even if it's just a dollar, to the American Red Cross or any reputable charity helping these folks build their lives back. In these times of great need, it is private donations, which often help the most. Well, that's our podcast for today. Paul Runyon should return and join me on next week's episode. For Paul, I'm Connor Coughlin. Have a great week. As always, if you like this podcast, please spread the word. Tell a friend about The Midnight Ride and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Paul Runyon. I'm Connor Coughlin signing off. Thank you for listening to the Midnight Ride podcast.